are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his love. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Thank you, Ainsley. Well, we should probably test this out, even though it's Labor Day weekend with this story. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. All right, the Paschal greeting. We get so accustomed to this just on Easter, but here we are with the Easter story on a Sunday in September. After 22 weeks, 22 Sundays, we come to the end of Mark's gospel. It was the Sunday after Easter that we started into this portion of scripture. And here we are finishing our study on September the 5th. What a season it's been. It's also been a time during which we have completed what I think might be the single most significant project that we have ever undertaken as a church. And that is translating the gospel into a new language. In the spring, we got to know the Timbaro people of the southern nations of Ethiopia, some 100,000 people in that language group, many of them following Jesus, but having never had the Bible in their own language before. And so the seed company introduced us to them and the idea of partnering with them to translate the gospel of Mark. And so we would provide the dollars and the prayer support They would provide the translators and the logistics. And we took that up after Easter, if you remember. And just six weeks later, I was thinking it would take the summer and we'd celebrate today. But in just six weeks, it was fully paid for and was an absolutely amazing milestone. Then by midsummer, Seed Company said the drafts are rolling off the press and we received special copies here in Elk River. And you and I can't read it, but we distributed those. Got one on my table this morning. And there it is, the Gospel of Mark in Timbaro. When Esther and I were overseas visiting her parents, 
we actually took our copy along just to be able to show her family and tell them the story of what God had done. So here we are at the end of this extended season in Mark. And last week I got the most recent report from the Timbaro. And so here's the cover page that you can see. So this was completed the end of July. And that came into our inbox this last week. And I remind us that we had one slice of the pie on this project. And that was Mark. The overall project for the Timbaro actually has two Gospels, Mark and Luke. And then a handful of epistles or letters. And so here's the progress report that we read about. The Gospel of Mark is in print. We know that. We received our own. The team is proofreading Colossians and Philemon. And first drafts are underway for 1 Corinthians, Romans, Titus, and Hebrews. So praise God. Isn't it fun to be this connected to something that's that big? And I want you to hear what the chairman of one of the local congregations reported to us. His name is Abraham Doko, and here's what he wrote, included in the report. This is God's time for the Timbaro. God has also chosen you to carry out this big responsibility. As the church leader, I commit myself to this project till we get the Bible with our own language. We don't want to miss this opportunity. If I see the Timbaro Bible in my lifetime, I will consider myself as honored and privileged. Isn't that cool to be part of something like that? You have helped bring the Word of God to people who never had it. To hear and to read and to learn about Jesus. And that's why I say, after 11 and a half, 12 years of our little existence as a church community, I think it's the most significant thing spiritually that we have ever done together. And who knows where God will take us next. Amen? I'm excited to see. All right, well, back to Mark in our own language, in English. We arrive at the big finish today, the resurrection of Jesus. And we've noted the past couple weeks what a unique opportunity we have to look at this story that we usually focus on just around Easter time. So two weeks ago, the suffering of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Last week, his death on the cross. And now this week, we're here at the tomb. And so on this Easter Sunday in September, I've outlined our thoughts this morning under three headings, very simply. The burial, the resurrection, and the ending. And as you'll see, Mark has a most unusual ending that demands our attention. So let's begin with the burial. It's good to start here with the burial because we can easily overlook its importance in this story. On Good Friday every year, we usually put all of our focus on the cross and really don't spend much time, if any, on the burial of Jesus. And yet it's very significant. So much so that it was named by Paul in what many think was an early creed, like a concise statement of faith of the early church. And we find this in 1 Corinthians 15. We quoted this passage two weeks ago. Here's what he says. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Then listen for these three things. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So those three things. Christ died, was buried, and rose again. And the reason his burial is so critical in that sequence is that it verifies for us that Jesus 
actually died and that he actually rose from the dead. You might remember how Charles Dickens starts his famous little novel, A Christmas Carol. Remember those opening lines? Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt about that whatever. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. And that's what Mark and the other gospel writers are saying through Jesus' burial. Let's look at this section together in the text if you have it in front of you. First it says it was preparation day. And that's the day before the Sabbath. And this, by the way, is how we know that Jesus died on a Friday. We celebrate Good Friday every year because he died on a Friday. Preparation day. The start of the new day in the Jewish mindset, actually started at sunset. It's a little bit different than what you and I are accustomed to. So what we would call Friday evening, after the sun has gone down, was actually the beginning of their Saturday, which they called the Sabbath. And that is what motivates this character named Joseph to seek Jesus' burial. Now let's talk about this Joseph for a second. In our third song this morning, after the message, we're going to sing about this Joseph. It is not the Joseph that was Jesus' earthly father from the Christmas story. That Joseph had apparently died somewhere when Jesus was in his teens or his 20s. This Joseph is from Arimathea, and as the text says, he was a prominent member of the Jewish council. That council would have been the Sanhedrin, which was the governing body that had condemned Jesus to die. That group was 70 men plus the high priest. But we know that not all of them in that council had been in favor of putting Jesus to death. Luke's account says that Joseph, this Joseph, had not consented to their decision and action. And based on John's gospel, we know the same would have been true for Nicodemus. And there may have been some others. Yet even so, Joseph had been a secret disciple. John is the one who makes this explicit. He says, now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. So Joseph was wealthy. He had made the varsity team. He was influential. He had status, but he was afraid to identify with Jesus. As I was growing up, I was raised in a family that would pray in restaurants. We prayed at home before we ate, so why would we do it any differently if we were out at a restaurant to eat? Well, I wasn't always convinced that was such a good idea. And I remember a few times where I thought it was a little embarrassing that in a crowded restaurant, here we would bow our heads and mom or dad would pray out loud. I just remember thinking, you know, what are these people at that booth thinking as they see this? What would happen if the waiter came back and we're in the middle of the prayer and it's kind of awkward, you know, they have the food to deliver. And I thought, you know, maybe this wasn't such a good idea. But I'll tell you what, now, just a little bit shy of my 40th birthday, (laughs) sometimes it takes a while, but parents keep at it. I don't think that way anymore. And I really credit my parents for teaching me to not be a secret disciple. 
You don't have to be obnoxious in the restaurant. Lay hands on the waiter or something like that. (laughs) But, here's what this means. This was a way, this little act of public worship, to say, Jesus, you've given us this meal again. And we belong to you. And we're not afraid to say it. In Mark, this is a big moment in Joseph's life because he goes from sheepish admirer to bold disciple. And there's a world of difference. It says in the text that he went boldly to Pilate to ask for Jesus' body. And really, it was probably only somebody like Joseph of Arimathea who could dare to get away with this. We talked about it with the cross last week that the Romans used crucifixion as a maximum deterrent to the population. They would leave bodies hang on the cross for days, right along the main roads where everybody traveled, so that everybody knew this is what happens to you if you step out of line with Rome. So to ask Pilate to have a crucified body for a dignified burial would have been risking your life. And that's why it says, Boldly. Joseph cashes in all of his social standing in order to be able to bury Jesus. And burial was important for faithful Jews. The book of Deuteronomy is where it says that a body shall be buried the same day that someone dies. Even if it's a criminal, they did this. All the more important in this story because the Sabbath, this wasn't just a random day, but the Sabbath was starting at sundown. And certainly you would want to avoid burial work on the Sabbath if you were a faithful Jew. So if Jesus died, according to the timeline, shortly after three in the afternoon, and sunset that time of year in that part of the world is about 6 p.m., Joseph has about three hours to work with and to complete the burial. And so he brings this request to Pilate. Now as for Pilate, he allows the request. He doesn't say, Joseph, you're next, which he could have. But first he wants to verify that Jesus is actually dead. So he calls the centurion. Did you catch that? Ring a bell from last week? He calls in our friend the centurion, the head of the execution squad. Now certainly the centurion was a man who was familiar with death. Who would have known if someone was dead? How many executions had he overseen in his career? How many battles had he fought in as he climbed the ranks? He and his team would have been very familiar with death. Pilate says to him, essentially, Joseph says that he's dead. Can you confirm? And the centurion says, yes. No doubt about it. And we remember in John's gospel that the soldiers knew that Jesus was dead. But what did they do just to make doubly sure? They pierced his side with a spear. So with that, Pilate releases the body to Joseph, and Joseph gets to work. Now, he's not working alone. We know that Nicodemus is there. And both of these men would have certainly had a team of servants who accompanied them wherever they went. So they would have washed the body. John says that Nicodemus had 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes that they would have used as they wrapped the body in linen strips of cloth and placed him in a nearby tomb. Now, this tomb belonged to Joseph. 
And it speaks of his prestige that he had a rock-hewn tomb so close to the city. These kinds of tombs were kind of like family burial sites, though we know from the other Gospels that this tomb had not been used yet. So maybe Joseph had just acquired it. And you have to picture something, as Katie shared with the kids, that's sort of like a cave, a cavern, and there's a main tunnel that you would enter through, and then there would be individual shelves cut into the rock, into the walls of the cave where family members were laid to rest. And then on the outside, there's this large circular stone, four to six feet in diameter, a foot thick, and at least 2,000 pounds. A ton to two tons is what it would have weighed. And that stone would be rolled down a track, down an incline, and come to rest perfectly in front of the entrance. And this was a way to keep grave robbers out and to keep the smell of decay in. And for all intents and purposes, this should be it. End of story. We close this Gospel of Mark and that's it. Except that it wasn't. Let's go to the resurrection. No Jewish person would have worked on the Sabbath, so the story rests quietly from Friday sunset until Saturday sunset. And yet not completely quiet. We know from Matthew that the religious leaders were thinking back to some of the things Jesus had said and they were worried that someone might steal the body and then claim that Jesus had risen. And so they asked Pilate to post a guard at the tomb for at least three days because that's what Jesus had alluded to. Pilate agrees He actually says, make it as secure as possible, posts a guard of troops, and not only that, but has the tombstone sealed. Not as if a 2,000-pound stone is going to go anywhere quickly, with a guard posted out front, but just to be sure they sealed it. So that happens on Saturday, but otherwise it's quiet. And then after sunset on Saturday, that's the end of the Sabbath, so now the stores and the shops open again, and the women are able to go and buy their spices. These women are Mary Magdalene, another Mary, and this woman named Salome. And they buy spices so that they can go pay their respects and anoint Jesus' body, some of these Jewish burial customs, and nothing more is expected. But what happens? Early Sunday morning, You know what it's like to get up before the sun is up, right? Maybe to get off to work if you work early. Or maybe for hunting. Or to catch some sales deals on Black Friday. It's still dark as they get up. And they head to the tomb as the sun is rising. And that's when they realize they forgot something. Have you ever had this happen, kids? You're on your way to school and you realize you forgot your lunch. It's too late now to turn around or you're on the bus. There's nothing you can do about it. Maybe adults, we know what it's like to forget your gym bag for a workout. There was one time I had to work out in dress shoes upstairs. That'll humble you real fast. And, you know, what are you going to do? Just keep going down the road, and that's what happens to these ladies. They've remembered all the spices and everything they need for the anointing of the body, and yet they forgot this detail about getting the tomb open. So they think, well, there's nothing we can do about it now. Let's, let's just go, and maybe we'll see if there's somebody we can find to help. And then as they come around the last bend, they see that the tomb is actually standing open. 
And as they come up to it and they step into that main entrance, into the tunnel, they find an angel sitting there. And it says, as we would imagine, they were alarmed. This is, by the way, the normal response in the Bible when someone meets an angel. We sometimes have these very pretty pictures of a sweet little angel with wings and a halo. But no, when you meet a real angel... In the Bible, we see this. It just strikes the fear of God into somebody. And that's exactly what happened here. So often the very first words the angel says are, Don't be alarmed. That's what he says to the women. He says, You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. And then he says one word in Greek. He says, He has risen. A gerthe. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And the women had, of course, seen the place where they had laid him. On Friday, when Joseph and Nicodemus had gone about the burial work, Mark reports they were there. These women were there and saw where he was laid. They were at the cross. They'd been at the burial. And now the tomb was empty. A man who was as dead as a doornail came back to life. And he left. Paul rightly recognized that this miracle was for all the marbles. He said to the Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Paul knew that either this event happened, and everything Jesus ever said was true, or it didn't, and it wasn't. Now it goes beyond the scope of this message and the time we have this morning to make the case for the historicity of the resurrection. But let it be said that the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead is so compelling that across history, even in the modern era, it has made the most hardened skeptics into believers in Jesus. It's that good. But you have to believe it for yourself. The tomb was empty that morning, except for an angel. And after sharing the news that he is risen, the angel said in verse 7, but go tell his disciples that he is risen. He is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. And I love the pair of words there. Katie picked it up in speaking with the kids. Go and tell. It was right in our blessing. And that's what we as disciples are commanded to do. As the people of the resurrection, we get to go and tell. And if our idea of what it means to be Christian is just occasionally to attend a church service, to sit and listen, then we have not understood discipleship. You can read all kinds of statistics about the rate of decline in the church in America. But at the end of the day, this is what it comes down to. Will we go And tell others about Jesus. If we do, the church will grow. If we won't, the church will continue to fade. And that brings us to the ending. Our third and final heading. We had the burial, the resurrection, and now the ending. And there's an oddity at the end of Mark's gospel that you and I are not going to solve today. But we should be aware of. In the text, after the angel has spoken, verse 8 says... Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. 
And then comes this editorial note. It's in your blue Bible. Joe and I were looking at his Bible before church. Most any Bible, you're going to see this note that says, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20. So you can verify it. Take a look and make sure it's there. It says so in my Bible. And then verses 9 through 20 follow in italics. And so what does this mean? What do we make of this? It means that verses 9 through 20 were almost certainly not in the original text from Mark. And here's how we know that. The Bible has such a high degree of reliability. It is the best attested writing far and away of anything in the ancient world. Remember that for most of human history, if you wanted a copy of a book, you had to pick up a pen and paper and actually hand copy it. That's how things were transmitted and passed down. It wasn't until the printing press some 500 years ago that any other method was possible. And so this practice of manuscript writing and copying is how they shared things and duplicated them. And it was a rigorous, exacting skill. For the New Testament, for instance, it means that we have 5,000 different Greek manuscripts, 8,000 Latin manuscripts, and 1,000 manuscripts in other languages like Syriac and Coptic. Now, those numbers might not mean a whole lot to us, but let me compare them to some other folks you have heard of. Plato, Aristotle, Caesar. How many manuscripts do we have of their writings? Anywhere from 1 to 20. So because the Bible is so well attested, we can pretty easily see where in this process of copying, an error may have snuck in as a scribe got a little drowsy at his desk. In the case of Mark, the earliest and best manuscripts across the board do not have this longer ending of Mark that's in italics. And earliest is important because it means it was closer to the original, God-inspired, error-free edition that Mark would have written. I want you to imagine the telephone game. Is that still a thing? Did you play the telephone game where you got a circle of kids and the one starts with a message and whispers it into the ear of their neighbor and it passes all the way around the group? Is this familiar at all or is this from the 1980s? Okay, so like the telephone game, the bigger that circle is and the longer it's going around, the more likely it is that somewhere along the way this message gets tweaked or a word falls away or something gets put into plural or something. It's much more likely that the 12th person is somehow off rather than the second person. So earliest is important. And the fact that our earliest and very reliable manuscripts don't have verses 9 to 20 tells us that it was added later. And it was probably added because some scribe felt it was so strange to end with this verse, number 8, that says the women fearfully fled the tomb. And in fact, when you read verses 9 to 20... It looks like someone's compilation of the details you would find at the end of Matthew, the end of Luke, and the end of John. So some well-intending scribe was just looking to kind of button up this ending from Mark. So verses 9 to 20 are interesting to read, but the vast majority of scholars are pretty certain that verse 8 is the ending, at least as we have it. 
And that's the second question. Did Mark intend to end his gospel with verse 8 or not? You know, maybe he wasn't finished yet and some adverse circumstance came up. Illness or death. Maybe he had written a longer ending, but somehow very early on in this process, that papyrus paper on the scroll, it broke off from the bottom. That would be the part that's most townly wound around the scroll. So it's an interesting question. You will find so many faithful scholars who go this way or that way on that question. But for our purposes, here's what you can rest assured in. God has given us everything that we need. Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. And that leaves us here at the end of Mark In a sense, it's like the story has been handed to us to finish. Like the Gospel of Mark has left us with unfinished business and now the pen is in your hand and you have to answer the question Mark's been asking. Who is Jesus? We titled this whole message series, From Easter Till Now, we have been under the theme, Jesus the King but I can't write that for you. Who is Jesus to you? What do you think? Have you drawn your own conclusion? Here's what Mark has given us. Here's what he said. Jesus died, was buried, and rose again to forgive my sins and give me everlasting life. That is the good news we get to go and tell the world. And then he gives the pen to you. And the question is, will you remain a secret disciple? Following Jesus when it's convenient. Or if you're in the right circles. Or not in the restaurant. Or will you be bold? Give him your life. And proclaim that he is your king. One day you and I will come to our last Labor Day weekend. You know, the staple in the Minnesota calendar. Labor Day, the last hurrah of summer, signals the beginning of school and the new school year. This day that is for lakes and grills and family time and an extra day off. And one year, it'll be your last. This holiday, every year I remember my grandpa's last Labor Day. Because there we were at the lake spending some extra time together. And nobody knew it was going to be his last. It was a few days later that he found out he was sick and he had but a few weeks to live. Life can change on a dime. And many of you know that from your own families. So with Mark here on this final Sunday in this gospel, I implore you, don't waste the time. But decide for yourself that Jesus is king. Let's pray together. Lord, you search every heart. You know every thought. 
And as we come to the end of our study, Lord, we ask that you would make plain to us what our next step will be. If some of us, Lord, have been hedging or following in secret, or we just come to sit and listen, I pray, Lord, that this would be our time. That we would step out of the shadows and we would claim our allegiance belongs to you. Lord, would you give us the courage that Joseph finally found to be bold and to go and tell that you are the king. We pray in your mighty and awesome name. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.